Hi, I'm Homer Hargrove and I'm the pastor of Grave Top Church. I hope that today's message inspires you and that connecting with our church family today truly makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. I'm really stepping in to even start trying for that dream, trying for that calling. We're, we're afraid that we're not going to be able to accomplish it, work at it, and so we don't stop at all. And that fear, that fear is, it stops us from really finding that fulfillment in life so many times. What I have found, as young as I am, is life is incredibly short. Life is incredibly short, and if you don't allow yourself to take that risk, you will spend your days feeling unfulfilled and even confused about your life and your life's purpose because it will feel insatiable. Insatiable, meaning no matter what you do, you just won't be able to feel like you're satisfied in life. Even if you bought that new car that you thought was going to make you happy, you realize that it doesn't really make you happy. You get that one job, you, that job that you thought would be a little a step up, and you get it and you're still not happy because you really never stepped into what you felt like you were called to do because you were afraid. And the question is, the question comes, why don't I feel happy? Why don't I feel happy? And it will come to your mind like this relentless fly buzzing around your head. And most people, what they end up doing is they look at their current situations and they look at their relationships as being the culprit to why they're not happy. But the real reason, what I believe more times than not, the real reason is because we never set out to fulfill that calling deep in our heart. We were too afraid of the risks. So by the end of this message, I want you to not only feel inspired to attempt to chase what you believe in, what you love, your dreams, your calling, but I want you to feel emboldened to really kill that fear, that fear that would have you give up halfway. Because half the battle is trying in the first place, but the other half is when you're in the middle and you think that all of the fears you had at the beginning were true and you want to give up halfway. So with that being said, it makes me think about this, this concept of fear. And it makes me think about the, the first time I realized how powerful fear was. And I want to share this story before we get into the bulk of the message. And it, it, when I was in high school, um, there was one year, I was never a person that was involved in, in school activities or athletics or anything, but one year I had to move to Florida, I had a new school, didn't have any of my old friends and it was just like this isolating feeling and I ended up getting invited to join the wrestling team and for me I was never really uh, I was just never had school spirit it, was, uh, it just wasn't for me but I ended up doing it just out of like the chance of trying to do something with my time because I was just bored and you know getting doing so many drugs and drinking all the time was just not as fun anymore and so I was like let me let me try to do something and I was wrestling. I ended up uh, becoming varsity uh, my first year. I ended up doing really well. I was like, this is amazing. I, the school is just letting me hurt other people physically? Like this, what? I didn't even know this was legal. This is great. And so I had, a, I had an amazing time. I made varsity and it, every time in practice, I would just kill it. I was just so tenacious at what I was doing. And I, uh, even just for simple moves, like there's a move called a cross face to where if someone's shooting on you, meaning they're trying to like take you down, you use your, your hand like this, your wrist, and you use it across their face like that. See cross face? And wherever the head goes, 
your, your body will follow. And so I use that as like, oh, this is pretty much like an illegal, an illegal punch in the face. And so when I, even just for something simple, I'm like, bam! I'll be busting people's lips in, in our practice. And I, I just had so much fun. And when it came down to my first match, I was pumped, ready to go. It, and all up to this point, I was emboldened that I could really do this. And in, this, in the middle of this first bout, I'm just, I'm going at it with everything I've got and I'm just killing this kid. I'm doing a great job. And not only am I just like slaughtering him in points, but I'm doing it in like a, a, with some style. I'm flexing on him. I put him in a move called the cradle. I'm not going to demonstrate it here, but it's like an embarrassing move to be put in. You're like, it, it's like just not, it, it's embarrassing. It's like you're being cradled like a baby. And I was like this over him and he's like, ah! and and all of a sudden, I'm about to win. I have all these points on the board. And now all I, 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 if I wanted to, I could just pin him right now in this move that I got him in. And as I'm there, and the ref is right on the mat, like, are his shoulder blades touching? And, and in this like, moment, it's like everything else got drowned out. And I had this incredibly fearful thought. And it sounded just like this. Do you really think you're going to win your first match? And almost like a cold shiver down my spine, I believe that thought. And the moment that I believed that thought, not just when I thought it, but the moment that I believed it, it was like all of my strength left me. I, I immediately felt so insecure, like I, was not, I didn't have the ability to do what I was doing. I was in the middle of doing it, but now that I believe this fear, I felt helpless. And in that moment that I was literally winning, the guy flipped me and pinned me like that. And from that point forward, in practice, I, had, I, didn't, I didn't feel that pressure, that fear. But the minute I would go into that match, I would have that fear come all over me. And I, I would just feel so afraid that I wasn't able to do what I've already knew I could do. So with that being said, I want us to start with identifying where this fear can come from. Because if we just say, we just need to throw off fear yeah, and like start having a rainbow butterfly party where we just believe that it's just going to all be great. It's not going to work. We need to really identify these contributors of our fear. And so the first thing that we want to look at is fear of friends. Because people can either hold you back or push you forward. People can either hold you back or push you forward. We will only go as far as the people we surround ourselves go. Well, I know that we heard that growing up, like you are who are your friends are, but have you not found that to be true? That you truly are who your friends are. And even in workplaces, if, if all you hang out with at work and those moments of breaks and times to, to, to shoot the breeze, if you only hang out with those who are trying to just beat the clock, you end up becoming the same kind of worker. You, you hang out with all the people that, that are just kicking tires and trying to just wait till it's five o'clock so that they can go home. You, you'll never get promoted like that. But when you're actually surrounding, you're trying to uh, in, impart yourself into the people who are actually working hard, who are actually getting promoted, you'll find yourself getting promoted too. And I really believe that the reason this is, is because we have this natural compliance within our DNA. 
this natural compliance within our DNA that causes us to fit in to whatever is socially acceptable at the time. Just look at the way we've changed how we dress, how we do our, uh, do our hair, how we style ourselves. Just look at people's eyebrows in the 90s. Why'd they do that? No one knows, right? Why, why would they do that? Because everyone else was doing it. <laughs> I got to say that with like so much passion. <laughs> why would they make their eyebrows that thin? <laughs> because everyone was doing it. That was what was acceptable. That's what everyone was doing. It was relative. And we are afraid to be different and step out of place to what we think is acceptable to those, what, what's around us. And... I want us to look at a person in Scripture that I really feel like embodies this kind of compliance. And it's the person of Nicodemus. He was a member of the Pharisees. And if, y'all, if anyone's read through the Testament or maybe heard a couple of stories, the Pharisees don't typically like Jesus. They, they usually have, you know, get mad, you know, are the ones that crucified him. He is. Pharisees don't like him. And so he's a member of the Pharisees who came to speak to Jesus early in the book of John and because he was interested in Jesus and he had in his heart that Jesus may be the Messiah that's what he had in his heart even though he was a member of the Pharisees and this is how this first exchange start uh, started out it says in John chapter 3 verse 1 through 2 there was a man named Nicodemus a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee he was a Pharisee And after dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous and your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, when when Nicodemus says this, says we all know that God has sent you. Who, Who is he talking about? Because he's not talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees openly rejected Jesus. See, he, in this simple sentence, he, he takes himself out of his friendships. He takes himself out of his normal relationships, and he puts himself into a different category. See, when he says, we all know, he's no longer talking about the Pharisees. He's saying, we all, all the other people know, and he's making himself out to be an ordinary person. That is why he goes to Jesus after dark. Because he didn't want the other Pharisees to know. He wasn't trying to let everybody know that he was following Jesus. That he wanted to go talk to Jesus. He went after dark so that not only would the people not know, but the Pharisees, his friends, would not know. He did it in secret because he was afraid what his peers would think. He was afraid what others would think. And if we, even in this chapter, when we go down... When we actually go to chapter 7, when we look at chapter 7, it's a moment where the Pharisees start talking about how they could wrongfully convict Jesus. Even though Jesus didn't do anything wrong. It's when they first start talking about, how can we just lock this guy up? We just need to get rid of him. And in this moment, Nicodemus, he he speaks up and says, is it right for us to convict a a man wrongfully? And he's like, what are we doing? And even in this moment, he stays with the Pharisees. It shows us that not only did he choose to stay with the Pharisees rather than Jesus, but we see that he chose to stay 
and a way of thinking that he knew was wrong in order to be accepted by others. He was willing to comply even though it was wrong in his heart. What it, not only does it stop us between wrong and right, but it, the same thing happens from ordinary to glorious. We stay in what is ordinary when we could have something glorious in our lives. And I, I think that when we look at stories like this, we always think, well, that, that wouldn't be me, though. That wouldn't be me. I, I want to project to you that no one here is above this reality. This reality of, of being compliant to what we feel is normal, to our friendships. It, I want us to go all the way back to the 1950s. Because in the 1950s, that was right after the time of the, the Holocaust, you know, the Nazi regime. Not so fun, right? And you know what everyone, even to this day, says? Well, if I was in that time, I wouldn't do that stuff. I wouldn't have complied with the Nazis. I would have stepped up. I wouldn't have done that. Everyone imagines that they would be like this, this just stand out like, no, I'm not going to do that. In the 1950s, it, it was so, this whole thought was so bizarre that an entire country did something that everyone generally knew was wrong because everybody did it. And so there's all these psychologists ended up being incredibly curious about how the mind works when it comes to simply complying to our communities. And in the 1950s, there was a series of psychological experiments done by multiple psychologists, but I want to look at one conducted by Solomon Ash. And in his experiments, what he would do is, he would just do, the, he would do a lot of different experiments, but one that he would do is that they would tell the subjects that they're going to do a vision test. And in the vision test, they would put on the screen, I don't have it here, I just... Just for, you know, <laughs> on the screen, they would have three lines, A, B, and C, and then they would have one line off to the side, and they're all different lengths. And the one off to the side, they would say, which line represents uh, the, this, this one, A, B, or C? And it'd be, they're all different lengths, and they were clearly different lengths. It wasn't just like, oh, it could be a little bit. No, it was clearly different lengths, and they wanted to see if people would deny their own senses if the rest of the majority uh, agreed to it. And so, say if it was, the, the correct one was B, and it was clearly B. They had everybody else in the room that was in on it, and they would all raise their hand for A. And the test subject that didn't know that they were the test, they looked around, and they knowingly rose their hand for the wrong answer. See, they did this trial after trial, and they, it, it revealed that a person's own opinions are influenced by the group. And that 76%, that's three out of four people, denied their own senses at least once. They, they denied what they could clearly see. See, the, it, the studies showed that people were willing to ignore reality. People were willing to ignore reality and give an incorrect answer. Why? In order to conform to the rest of the group. That's deep. That you would willfully give a wrong answer in order to conform. But what, let's take a moment back. Is that not what high school taught us? College taught us? 
How many times did we do what was wrong when we made the wrong decision because we were wanting to conform? The study, the test suggests that conformity, it can be influenced. That conformity, this, this need within us, that it's really this need to fit in. This is an actual psychological study that showed we as human beings have this need within us to fit in. And it's called conformity. And the other thing that it, it revealed is that a belief that we have a belief that other people are better informed or that they're smarter than us. Even when we can clearly see something is wrong. And that, that is a dangerous realization for our society. But now, rather than making this whole, like, you know, political stance on this, I want us to take a step back and look solely at our faith, at our callings, at those aspirations and dreams that God has put in our hearts. And I want to call you to break out of the mold of what other people think. Break out of the mold of what other people think, because they will never have to live your life. No one has to live your life except for you. You have to live with every consequence of your actions, or rather, every consequence of your lack of action. Everything that you were too scared to do, you have to live with that for the rest of your life. No one else has to live with that. There's a moment where I had to break out of that churchianity. When I, when I was, since I was not raised in church, when I first gave my life to Christ and started going to church, Y'all know how it can be, right? There can be some religious chains that people put on you. And if you don't do it this certain way, well then, can you even call yourself a Christian in this church? And if I would have conformed, let me just list some things for, just for my own life. If I would have conformed to what the others around me thought at the time, I would have never married Lauren. Not because everyone was saying that she's toxic for you. No, you're too young to get married. Y'all just met. All, the, all these simple reasons are like, we had to go through the steps that they wanted us to go through when at the end of the day, they didn't know anything about our relationship, anything about our life. I would have never married Lauren, I I, which meant I would never have my kids. My kids right now, I mean... I'm 10 years married with three kids. In fact, I, not only all of those things, I would never have started this church. I would have never done more ministry than I've ever done in my life if we did not move here and start this church. I mean, as little as we are, people have been impacted. Lives have been changed. We would have never made those kinds of impacts or got these kinds of experiences if we would have conformed to what others thought. And that's why you have to break out of the mold because you, if, you, if you just find the courage, you, you'd find that ne you need to chase these passions and dreams and these callings because if you really want to do that, you might have to look at changing into new groups of people, new groups of friends, new, new mentors, who decided to break out of the mold of ordinary too. And I'm not, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about toxic and unwise decisions. Okay? We need wisdom, we need advice and counsel, but there's times where 
the the push down, the pushback that you're getting is not out of wisdom. It's not out of counsel. It's out of their own doubts of you. It's out of their own uh, uh, their own insecurities that they project on you. And there's a clear difference. And you need to be able to recognize those things and surround yourself with people who have stepped out of the box, who have been able to make those kinds of decisions. See, for me, I was like all the people that were telling me, you're not ready to get married. I was 19. They were in their 30s and they were still not married. We had different life goals, okay? I was, I was ready. I wanted that relationship. I wanted that, breast, that best friend to walk with in my life. We had different ideas of what success looked like. When it came to starting the church, the people who, who have never started a ministry, who were not active in ministry, were the ones telling me that I should stop. But see, when I would find myself of people who were entrepreneurs of their faith, people who started their own ministries, they're like, oh, you should do it. You, you will never, you'll, you'll always regret it if you don't do it. See, the people that had the same kind of goals, that, similar goals that I had, I was like, I need to talk to these people. See, you need to surround yourself with people who've also broke out of that mold and it will help inspire you to not live by that fear. Y'all dig that? So now that we understand who's holding you back and how our influences can either be life-giving or detrimental to our calling, let's talk about what's holding you back and that is the fear of failure because fear of failure stops you before you start. That fear of failure starts you, stops you before you start. Y'all can tell I'm a little dyslexic, right? <laughs> I always try to hide it, but it's there. <laughs> Every single person has experienced a fear of failure at some point. Every single one of us. And it starts at an incredibly young age. Even just taking my kids to the playground. And my daughter's like, I want to climb those monkey bars. I'm like, hell yeah, girl. Let's do it. I'm, I'm right here with you. And she starts. Remember the first times that she'd be starting? And I'm like, I'm right here, baby. And she's like, I can't do it. Like, man, doesn't that just break your heart? And almost naturally as a parent, you're like, you don't have to. But I was like, no, girl, you're going to beat this right now. <laughs> you're going to kill these monkey bars. <laughs> and I was like, baby, I got you. You don't have to be afraid. I'm right here. She's like, no, I'm scared. I was like, you don't have to be scared. See, even right then, she wanted to, but the minute she was doing it, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to make it. Talk about four years old, having fear of failure. And we have to understand that it starts at a young age. Think about that first time that you like somebody, but you're too scared to tell them. Why? You're afraid of failure. You're afraid to get rejected. We get that fear of failure so young. And every time we try something that we haven't tried before, that fear of failure comes in. Think about the first time that you applied for a job. Isn't it crazy how that fear turns into like this fantasy? This fear fantasy. And it's like you never applied for a job. Or maybe it's the first time you applied for like the real job. And you have that fear when you send in your resume, when you send in your application, that they're going to just look at it and just start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> they think they should get this job. <laughs> Everyone, look! <laughs> look at this moron! Thought that they could get this job? It's like we have this fantasy 
that we're going to not just fail, but like fail big. Like everyone's going to know that we couldn't do it. And it makes us afraid to try. We face fear at every new stage of life that we haven't experienced before. And many of us have lived in our second best reality. We live our second best life because we let that fear control us and dictate our decisions to where we don't step into what could really be the best. And I'm, I'm not just talking about our relationships. I'm not talking about our workplaces, our call. I'm talking about even with our faith, we hold back because of that fear. How many times did you just feel this random inkling to pray for someone or invite someone to church to talk to someone about Jesus? And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm, I, I'm barely getting myself together. How could I do that? And see that fear of failure, even then is like, no, you can't. So don't even get started. I want us to look at someone who dealt with their own fears, and it's Timothy. Because Timothy is someone that he went from, he was a young believer who was discipled by Paul, and at a young age, a young age, he went from student to teacher. He became a pastor at a young age, and it was rather sudden. And like many of us feel, he felt that he was in over his head. You ever, maybe you got the first step, and then you're there like, what did I do to myself? And you, you got your feet in the water, and you're like, I'm going to drown. You barely got your toes in, and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drown here. I'm going to die. And see, he had that same kind of doubts, and he was afraid that he was in over his head. He, he began to doubt his calling, just like we do. And that fear, it came in strong, just like it does for many of us. And it was trying to get him to stop after he's already made step one. Some of us, it's, it stopped us from even taking step one. And that fear, it comes in like a flood. It makes you doubt all, uh, all that you were going to do, all that you want to do. And if you allow those fears turn into fantasies. See, we have those dreams but if we let fear creep in, they turn into these fear fantasies. They turn into nightmares. And if you allow that to happen, it will eventually take over and stop you from ever getting the chance to succeed. And so one of the biggest things that you can do when faced with a barrage of fear like that is to talk to someone that you look up to, someone that you can trust. And luckily for Timothy, he had Paul. And this is the kind of encouragement he had to give Timothy. It says... In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your mother Eunice, or your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice. And I know that the same faith continues strong in you. Does that not sound like it's from Star Wars? <laughs> the Force was in, with my father, <laughs> and it is strong with me. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of what? Someone say fear. fear. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. He hasn't given you a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. See, this, this goes deep because... Paul, this is like a system that we got going on. See, Paul reminds Timothy where he came from. 
He starts by reminding Timothy where he came from. He, he shows that his upbringing and his experiences had given him the tools to face the unknown. And I want us to be clear what the, I think that this is actually a universal truth. And I don't typically say that, okay? I really think because whether your, your childhood upbringing was really good or really bad, it has prepared you for this moment. It's prepared you for this moment. Whether you had people that have taught you and believed in you and you have this confidence walking forward or whether you have to strive for everything that you have right now, you are strong. It, it makes me think about like when I was a kid, I didn't really have like a lot of guidance <laughs> growing up. And I remember this moment in which I was working at this shop and they're like, go ahead and uh, just change the, the oil on this car. And I was like, <laughs> like that's just like a, an innate skill. Like... <laughs> I had to learn how to tie my shoes. <laughs> oh, how am I going to learn? How am I going to change the oil without being taught? And I remember getting really upset and frustrated. I started getting in my feels. You know how we do? I'm like, no one ever taught me. I had, to, I had to strive just to get where I'm at today. No one taught me how to tie a tie. How to change the oil on a car. And I remember the Holy Spirit just whispers like, yeah, but you figured it out. And that's your strength. See, even in the lack that I thought I had, God turned it into a strength where I just, I just figured things out. Y'all think I know how to do this media stuff? I just figured it out. See, no matter what your upbringing was like, God is telling you that it can be your strength to remember what, that it has prepared you for this moment. Then Paul, he affirms Timothy's faith by pretty much saying, you don't need me to tell you what to do. He's saying, you, the, he's literally saying that that same faith, it resides in you. He's saying, no matter what, Timothy, I know that you're going to figure this out. You don't need me to tell you exactly what to do because I know that whatever you decide, I know that you'll figure this out because you're trying and I know your heart is genuine. Man, you ever have a moment like that to where you're like, you're adulting, right? You're learning how to figure adulthood out. And all of a sudden you're like, just tell me what to do. And you're like, well, you just got to figure it out. You're like, no, like literally tell me step by step what to do. No, you'll, you'll get through this. And have that moment where you have, you have this, this responsibility of your own life. See, Paul's saying, you got this. I know it's scary, but you got this. And then Paul reminds him that he is unique and full of potential. He says, remember the, to fan the flames that God has given you. He's given you gifts. He's saying you, you are unique and full of potential. There's no one else like you. And this role that you have, God put you there. God put you there. And he's, he's going to give you the power to do this. God is with you and his Holy Spirit will give you the grace that you need to win. And then he ends by confronting Timothy's identity. You notice how it ended? He, he first, let me go back. Oh, no, don't look at that. <laughs> it says, he says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. What he does is he says who Timothy is not. And then he tells Timothy who he is. And I think that when it comes to identity, it's something very unique because I feel, I really believe that we all have a decision who we want to be. That we all get to decide what kind of person we want to be. And Paul is saying, this is who you're not, but this is who you are. This is who we don't have to be. This is who we can be. See, he says, 
that God did not give you that spirit of fear and timidity, even though Timothy felt that fear and timidity. He says, but this is what you can be. You can have that power. You can walk out confident. You, you, it, it's this incredible realization that you have this decision to who you want to be and who you don't want to be. And whether you have someone to go to or not, maybe we, we don't all got these Pauls to go to, when you're facing that fear of failure, you need to be reminded of these things. Of these things. Because everything in your life has prepared you for your next step. Everything in your life has prepared you for your next step. And people believe in you and see the best in you. You may not get told that often, but there's people that believe in you. And you must understand that not one single person is perfect. No one is perfect. And just like we talked about last week, we're going to make mistakes. That doesn't disqualify us from taking the next step. I'm called to be a good father. It's my passion. I'm going to be there for my kids. I'm going to do my very best. If I make a mistake, if I, if I say I lose my patience, I yell at one of my kids, stop that. I get all sad and stuff. Does that discredit all of my fatherhood? When I make one mistake? No. If, if we understand that we don't have to throw off everything and give up, it's not this tightrope to where if you make one mistake, you fall all the way down and have to start from the beginning. We make mistakes that doesn't disqualify you from doing what you're called to do. God has uniquely made you and he will give you the grace to he will give you the grace to get through it. You're not a defeated person. No one here is defeated. You don't have to be scared because you have God's power. You have God's love. You have God's ability to do what you need to do. Look at what Proverbs says. It says, chapter 24, verse 16, The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. One disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. We're, at the moment that you came over here, the moment you came to church today, you're, you're making this attempt of God in your life. See, this, the moment that you have even just an inch of God in your life, you're pursuing godliness. And this scripture is saying that we can trip, we can make a mistake over and over and over, but if you get back up, that's God's godliness in you. That's God's godliness, that relentlessness to go after it, even though the only way that we lose is if we don't try. The only way that we lose is if we don't try. And if it takes you seven times, then get back up every single time. Just don't give up. But most of all, don't stop before you even get started. So we now know how influential people can be in our path. And we understand that the fears of failing are common lies to stop us before trying. Now let's end by talking about how confusing it can be when we're in mid-walk of our calling, mid-walk of your dreams, and how those hesitations can really throw you off. I want to talk about, finally, the fear of finishing. Fear of finishing. Because you have to fight for your dreams, you have to fight for your calling as if they depended on you. I'm going to just preface that this last point is kind of violent, okay? For some reason or another, we as people are surprised by just how hard life can be. 
Have you noticed that? Like, when you're, in, when you're young, it's like you just imagine that you're going to figure things out, right? And then the closer and closer you get to like even 18, it's different for everyone. But it's like you start thinking like, how do I apply to college? <laughs> what do I do? And you start thinking about like how, how life seems so grand. And you're like, man, what am I going to do with my life? And then you actually get there, right? You, you start walking, you're like, I'm over 18, I'm an adult now. And all of a sudden, you realize that life is so hard that there is now life coaches for adulting. <laughs> we have to find coaches just to help us how to be alive, just how to, to live a life because it is that hard. And you don't have to even chase something meaningful. You don't even have to chase something above average to realize that life can suck. That life is hard. This world, this is where it gets a little violent, this world is cursed. This world is cursed. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, it brought a curse into this world. It caused death to be able to enter this world. Death was birthed in that moment when before it was not conceived of. That's why all beings before this, before this world, angels and stuff, they do not have death. That's why it's like when Lucifer rebelled against God, he is awaiting judgment date to be sent to hell. See, he's not in there yet. He's waiting on this place of death with us until judgment day because there's no death. Until, Ad, until Adam and Eve conceived death when they sinned on this world. And death reigns in this world. And the Bible tell, tells us not only does death reign in this world, but there's a curse put on man that we will work from the sweat of our brow. That's a curse. And when you realize, like, that's just work. Like, yeah, <laughs> but it's like, you don't realize how hard that work can be until you get a little bit older, right? Then you start realizing, you know what, this job is a curse. <laughs> Life can be, uh, feel like that a lot more. And even though the Bible tells us that the world is this way, we are still surprised when this world is filled with chaos. The Bible literally tells us that this world became broken in that moment and that this world is filled with death that this field is uh, filled with pain. And yet we are surprised, like, well, is, if God is real, how come this world is so broken? It's like, no, the Bible says why. It says why, because that was not the intention. In fact, the whole purpose of, the, of Jesus coming down was to save us from this world. That's the whole meaning of the cross, is to redeem the brokenness of this world. And it makes a lot more sense when you understand the redemption of Christ, because he made a promise that those who believe in him, that they would have an abundant life. Now, at first glance, that sounds just like nice and pretty. But when you realize that he is promising abundant life, an overflowing life, that, and let's understand what that is. It's not just like abundant life. Sometimes we think like, so like, we rich? <laughs> talking about, fulfilled to where you're beaming with this contentment about your life. You have this satisfaction. Have you ever found someone that is truly satisfied with their life? 
See, that's that abundant life that Jesus is talking about. He's, he promises his abundant life to a people who live in a world that is dominated by death. He, he's talking trash to death when he said that. He's talking trash. He's not talking smack. Talking smack is like, yeah, well, if I would be a part, you know, things would start happening. No, he's talking trash because he really did it. He really did it. He defeated death. And we are able to find victory in Christ to where even that curse is broken through Christ. And we're able to find that victory, but it takes two things. It takes two things. It takes God's grace and it takes hard work. God's grace and hard work. And most people, we depend on either one or the other. But the Bible shows us that we need both. And I want us to look at this final story in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14 through 19. It says, and just give you a background. In this moment, the king is facing enemies on all sides. And he's going to the prophet Elisha saying, what are we going to do? We need a miracle of God if we're going to actually beat these enemies around us. Or they're going to, they're going to uh, capture all of our people and we're going to be uh, killed and enslaved. And this is what happens. It says, when Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel, he cried. And Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. And Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. Then he commanded, open that eastern window. And he opened it. And then he said, shoot. So he shot an arrow. And Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow and an arrow of victory over Aram. For you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. And then he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and he struck the ground three times. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed. But now you'll only be victorious only three times. See, this is a really unique moment in Scripture because this king had this, this unique moment in which a miracle was about to happen. This miracle was about to happen, but the gravity of that miracle was dependent on his tenacity. The gravity of the miracle was dependent on his tenacity. And he was ready... He was so ready for God to just do everything. And that's how we imagine prayers. And don't get me wrong, God, I'm not trying to make this universal uh, uh, miracle method. I'm not making this universal prayer method. But he was so ready, just like so many of us, where he's asking God and saying, God, just do it, just do it, just do it. But here the man of God says, okay, now do what God says. So, and he just goes a little bit and like, okay, like, do it, God. Just does a little bit. Says, all right, now, God, do it. I did what you said. Now, just do it. But see, what it shows is Elisha shows that he should have been, put all of that passion 
all of his heart into the thing in which God had told him to do. God tells us what to do sometimes. And we just give this little effort. We kick some tires. We're like, okay, now what? God, you said you're going to do something. Do it. But here, imagine if this man, if he would have put all that passion, all the, he's saying, the charioteers, I see them. He's acting all passion. And then when he's given something that God tells him to do, it's like, okay, now what? But put that passion, put that tenacity into whatever it is God has told you to do. Give it all that you have got. See, the scripture, it shows that if he would have gave his very all on his part, that God would have met him there. But because he only gave a little, God gave him a little. I'm, again, I'm not projecting that this is a universal prayer formula method, okay? But what I am saying is that there's moments in which God tells us what to do. In those moments where He calls us to do something, that we should give everything we got. Especially when it's to those callings, when it's a dream that you need to, that God calls us to be tenacious. He calls us to be tenacious. He wants us to work like it's all on us and pray like it's all on Him. And I, I really would say and project, don't believe in the lie that you can just sit back and wait for God's promises to just be poured over you. The universe does not bend to our beck and call. The universe does not exist to serve us. It's not biblical, but rather, rather than thinking that these promises of God just shower over us, rather than that, instead, you have to violently chase your dreams. You have to violently chase your calling. And once you actually feel like you have that calling in your grasp, you have to beat it to death. You have to literally beat it to death as if you're in this fight that if you don't kill this thing, if you don't kill it, it's going to kill you. Can you imagine that kind of scenario? How many of y'all been in a couple of fights before? Imagine being in that scenario and just giving all that you've got as if not your life depended on it, but that calling depended on it. That's not, that it's just not going to survive unless you beat this to death. You have to give it all that you got. And it takes tenacity it takes commitment imagine for a moment me and my wife we prayed for three years to have kids three years we had two miscarriages we were desperate to be able to have our children once we actually got our baby in grasp see that's what we got i was like well this is hard <laughs> oh it's waking up all night <laughs> see being a parent is freaking hard it is hard. If I want to be a good dad, I have to be intentional. I have to be tenacious. I have to be committed. You're talking about getting home from school and you've been working all day. The, the first thing you want to do is play with your kids? No, <laughs> it's not. Surprise! In fact, when they're, when they're wanting you to play hide-and-go-seek again, and it's just not fun, 
Those are moments where you have a decision to be tenacious or not. Are you going to really be the good parent that you want to be in that moment that you don't feel like it? So it is with all of our other callings, all of our other dreams. And let me even break it down to our faith. Because in our faith, we have this imagination that some people are just special, right? We think that there's just some people that are special. Oh, well, like they just feel God. You know, like they just like, they just feel God so good. Like, I'm not like that though. I'm like, God, just please. And so we imagine that it just goes easy for them. I remember when I, when I first gave my life to Christ, I was so, I, I'm still impassioned about the Lord, but I hold back because I don't want to freak people out when it comes to like worship, right? Back in the day, I'll get into, I'm like, send me to some stomping churches. I'll stomp all around the church, right? I'll back because, you know, I don't want to freak people out here, but there'll be times I would be this excited, okay? Not only am I jumped, there's a time I jumped literally out of my shoes. I was like jumping during worship, just passionate, right? There's a time that I got so excited during worship. I was just like feeling it that I did a cartwheel. <laughs> now you, you never felt the Holy Spirit until you feel led to do a cartwheel. <laughs> but I, I was just passionate. And you know what people would tell me? Oh man, I just, I just love seeing you worship. It's just God's presence. Just, you must feel it so well. It's, that's just so nice. I wish I could have that. See that right there. I wish I could have that. See, in the moment, it just seems like I'm having this grand old time. What people would not see, though, is that the hours of prayer and worship I did when I didn't have to. Talking about getting home from work and before we're taking a shower and like, let me have some worship time. See, it's those tenacious moments where I was like, I remember being afraid to lose my salvation because I would see other people just after a couple years lose their salvation. So I was like, man, I need to be tenacious with this thing. I need to go after it. Talking about fasting just throughout the, just throughout the year. Just, an 18-year-old choosing to fast. Why? Because I wanted to be tenacious with my faith. Reading scripture, you know what? I'm not just going to read scripture. This month, I'm going to read the entire Bible in one month. You know what that takes? That takes four hours a day. That's 40 chapters a day. But see, I was tenacious. The, the moments in God's presence that I had... Even though it, it's, it, it's extravagant, it's great, it's glorious. It was not just because like I showed up. But I was tenacious in the moments that I showed up. In the same way, for our faith, I'll urge you, we should not chase that, that ooga booga feeling. We shouldn't chase the goosebumps. But when you are tenacious about your faith, so where you're, you're, you're pursuing God when you, no one else is telling you to, you're pursuing God. That, those moments just come reactionary. You don't have to beg God to make you feel that presence, to make you feel those, those ooga-booga feelings because it will just be this reactionary moment as you're just driving in, getting closer to God. I want us to all take a moment to bow our heads and close our eyes. This whole message, what I've really been talking about is passion. 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 About your callings, about your dreams, about your faith. And the ultimate passion is seen in God's love for you through Jesus Christ. The ultimate passion. Because when Jesus came to this world, it was not a walk in the park. 
Even when he was doing miracles and ministry, there's so many times where the Bible describes him going hungry, thirsty, not having food, walking for hundreds of miles, nowhere to lay his head, sleeping outside. Even in the work of ministry, as he's giving his all, people would murmur about him, gossip about him, talk trash about him. Imagine healing a blind man and then that blind man go uh, tell the Pharisees where they can find you so that they could betray you. Doing good but receiving evil. Why did he go through all that? Why did he go all the way to the cross in which he said, I don't have to do this, I'm choosing to. To make a payment of redemption is because he's passionate about you. See, God saw us as far away from Him, and He set out on this incredible chase for our souls, for our hearts to be saved. And maybe the things that have been holding you back from responding to His call is the fear that we're talking about today. You have this fear to try. And that fear is simply a lie from hell. We are saved by grace, and there's nothing that you could ever do that would make God love you any more or any less. So if that's you here today, and you're ready to try Jesus in your life, with every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. Amen. So just there to yourself, I want you to have a conversation with Jesus. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. Saying that if you have a genuine heart and talk to him yourself, that that's all it takes to start this relationship with him, this journey with him. Even the word repentance is translated to change direction. It's not just this mean word. It just means to change direction. And the moment that you put your trust in Jesus you're having a change direction moment in your life. And I'm telling you, if you continue on that path, your life will be unrecognizable. Because God is good. So have that conversation with Him yourself. The Bible says if you simply talk to Him, acknowledge who He is, the Son of God, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, surely you shall be saved. You don't need me to lead you through a pretty prayer. You can just simply talk to Him yourself. Now, while they're doing that, for the rest of you, if you're here and you feel this compelling in your heart to try for your calling, maybe you've kind of dipped your toes into the waters of your calling and your aspirations, your dreams, but today you feel like God is calling you to really go all in, that, that He's truly called you and you're ready to give it your all. You're not going to give 40%. You're not going to give 50%. You're really going to give it all that you got. If that's you here today and you're ready to make that kind of decision in your life, every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. I see your hands. I see all your hands. So now I'm going to pray for you. God, I pray for the Holy Spirit to fall upon each person right here. I pray that you fill them up with your presence, with your spirit, and that you would embolden them, that they would not just hear a pretty prayer, but that they would really feel the Holy Spirit empowering them in this moment, that they would feel a rush of boldness across their back, and that they would feel fire building up inside of their, their bellies, that they would truly feel 
the passion of the Lord rising up and that they would feel a confidence to take not only the next steps forward, but to chase this thing you have called them to do and beat it to death. That you would really give them the strength to endure the hardships, the strength to endure the doubts, the strength to cast off the fears, and that you would truly empower them to finish the work that you have started in them. I thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. With all that being said, we're going to go into a time of worship. Before we do, we're going to sign off online. Thank you guys for being a part. Have a good life. I want to, I want to share this verse before we go into Hey, I hope that you enjoyed today's message. If you did, there's several different ways to connect. First is by subscribing to our show, leaving a review or a comment. Second is by going to gravetopchurch.com and clicking the Get Connected tab so that we can connect with you as an individual. And third is if this ministry has made an impact in your life and you want to help us to continue to reach others, then you can give online by clicking the Give tab. Until next time, thank you for being a part of Gravetop Church.